Good morning, church. My name is Ellie. The passage today is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the entire thing, and then through um, chapter 4, verses, verse 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In a place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that, may be, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They have all been given, they have all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is God's word for us today. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Aha, ha, ha, ha. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You who, 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 who. 
You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Of course, you recognize this is the song called Imagine. It was John Lennon's best-selling solo of all time, and it was ranked <clears throat> number three by Rolling Stone as in the, of the 500 most popular songs of all time. And the song captured the imagination of millions, and it still does today, right? And we're all, we all kind of agree with the sentiment of wanting a world that is in peace and everybody living in peace. But Lennon's song was actually quite controversial, especially a part about no religion too, right? When he was asked uh, what he was referring to in this song, Lennon stated that imagine, which says imagine there was no more religion and no more country and no more politics, is virtually, he said, the communist manifesto, even though I'm not particularly a communist and I do not belong to any movement. He later said, there is no real communist state in the world. You must realize that. The socialism I speak about is not the way some daft Russian might do it or the Chinese might do it. That might suit them. Us, we should have a nice British socialism. I find these comments really interesting. <laughs> you know, it's like he's saying we can do it. We don't want to do it like the Russians did or the Chinese did, but we British, we, we'll get it right, right? And so I just find that comical <laughs> to some degree. Um, but this is, this is kind of a common belief of man. Rolling Stone described the lyrics as 22 lines of graceful, plain-spoken faith in the power of a world united in purpose to repair and change itself. And the dream of the world fixing itself and living in peace is nothing new. In fact, it's very, very old. Most theologians believe that this is what was going on in Genesis 11:4 in the Tower of Babel. When all the people united together and they said this, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Let us do something that will make us famous, something that we can be remembered forever for. Why doesn't this happen? Why can't the world join together to repair and change itself? Why can't we make into reality the world that we imagine? Well, we've been talking about this question in Ecclesiastes. I think this is a question that Solomon probably asked himself. And so we, 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 I think he, he talks about this throughout the book. And as we get into chapter 3 today, Ecclesiastes 3 opens with its own poem. But it's not a poem of, about the, of the way the world, the way we want the world to be, or the way we wish the world could be, or the way we imagine the world could be. Rather, this is a poem about the way the world is. Verse 1 says it's talking about everything under the sun. And it's talking about seasons and times. But I think the point of the, 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 
the poem is to just talk about the common experience of humanity, good and evil under the sun. Now, this poem was popularized in American culture by the birds. I believe it was in the 60s or the 70s. And this, it's often thought as being kind of quaint. It's a comforting sort of back-and-forth sway of the times and experiences of life. And I think it's okay to read it that way. However, it includes several items of suffering, like evil, or I'm sorry, like death, killing, weeping, mourning, suffering loss, hatred, and war. Certainly, we would prefer a world without these evils, but they have a season, and we cannot escape from the times of suffering. I think this poem clearly identifies what Kohelet referred to in chapter 1 as the repeating cycles of life. Remember, he said there's nothing new. Generation comes and generation goes, but the earth stays the same. Nothing changes. And I think that's what he's talking about here. And in verse 9, he reminds us of a theme that he had brought up in chapter 1. What gain has the worker from his toil? No amount of human toil can change or control these seasons. We are subject to the sufferings of this present time. I find it interesting, Paul talks about this in Romans 8, if you've been memorizing this passage of Scripture, that as we go through Ecclesiastes, he says, For the, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. But where does he get that phrase? What's he talking about? The sufferings of this present time. I think he's referring right back here to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That's what Solomon's describing for us here. This is the business that God has given us to be busy with. We cannot change it. We cannot break out of it. Verse 10 reminds us, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So, so far in chapter 3, up to this point, he's kind of reviewing what he's been talking about so far in the book of Ecclesiastes. And now he takes us one step further. And verse 11 introduces a new idea, and I think verse 11, to me, is maybe the key verse in Ecclesiastes. It's certainly the key verse in the first half of the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's going to set the tone for the next four chapters. Let's read it together. He, he's referring to God here, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I call this faith, not sight, right? He's struggling with this belief that God has made everything beautiful in its time, yet we can't understand it. We can't see it. We can't, we can't quite put together all that God has done from the beginning to the end. So this sets up the struggle of Ecclesiastes. This is what he's, he's struggling with. This is what he's talking about in this book. It's what Augustine described as the Christian pursuit of faith-seeking understanding. I think that's what we do. We, we, we believe, and we're, we're trying to add understanding and knowledge to our belief. But Solomon here admits our understanding has a limit, a severe limit. Now, the first half of the verse is a statement of faith, right? He, we're going to see as he goes through Ecclesiastes, he's going to say, I saw this, and I saw this, and I saw this. He's making observations about the world. But here, he doesn't say, I saw this. He just says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. This isn't an observation. This is a revelation. 
All commentators agree that Solomon here is, is referring back to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis 1.31, the last verse of chapter 1, after we read all that God did to create the heavens and the earth, we read this. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Ecclesiastes 11a is simply a restatement of that. And Solomon is affirming that. He's bringing this Hebrew revelation into this conversation, trying to make sense of the world. And he goes on to say, and, and he has put eternity in man's heart. Now, what is he talking about here? And I think he's going back to Genesis 1 and 2 here as well. In Genesis 1 and 2, we realize that God did not intend death to be a part of human experience, right? There was the tree of life in the middle of the Garden of Eden, and if, if the human beings had access to that, the idea was that they could continue to live without death. And God gave them that warning, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the day that you give it, you will surely die, right? So death wasn't a part of the original status or the original existence. But then we know what happened. Death entered into the scene, right? As they ate from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and so now, even though we have eternity in our heart, death impairs our ability to understand what God is doing because we live such short lives. We cannot see, we cannot understand what God is doing eternally from beginning to end. This is a consequence of the fall, of wanting to experience good and evil. It's part of our experience of evil that we cannot see what God is doing, we cannot understand. And so I think this is Solomon's third observation in the book, and it's simply this. In our experience of good and evil under the sun, we cannot understand what God is doing, right? This is what the opening poem talks about, our experience of good and evil. And in our experience of good and evil under the sun, we simply cannot understand what God is doing. And so we have to walk by faith, not by sight. Now, Solomon is going to go on and talk about the vanity he sees in the world that is very, and, and because of this, it's very hard for temporary man trapped in time to see how it could ever be beautiful. But he starts with that statement of faith. And so this sets up the next four chapters. Ten times in the next four chapters, Solomon's going to say, I saw this, I saw that. He's going to be seeing vanity and evil under the sun. But before he does that, he gives us two insights that flow from his faith that God is going to make everything beautiful in his time. Notice he says twice, I perceived something before he starts talking about what he saw. And the first thing that he perceives is joy and goodness, verses 12 and 13. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil this is God's gift to man. I love this verse. It's one of my favorite verses. I think it's a good life verse right here. There's nothing better. This is his second better than statement. There's nothing better than to be joyful and do good. And if you're able to live a life like that, where you are joyful and you do good, it's because it's God's gift to you. That's the only way you can have this kind of experience. And I believe this is an Old Testament preview of the New Testament salvation that we have in Christ. These ideas of joy and goodness are repeated throughout the New Testament. 
Let me just give you a couple of examples. Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Notice the word always there. This is to be the Christian's constant experience, right? We have the possibility of being joyful always. And notice, rejoice in the Lord. This is the way that we can rejoice always, only, the only way, right? In the Lord. What does it mean to be in the Lord? We trust him. We trust that he's going to make all things beautiful in his time, right? It's this, this joy that flows out of our trust and belief in God and in the Lord. And so this is New Testament salvation in Christ is, 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 is an experience of joy. The fruits of the Spirit are what? Love, joy, peace, right? And we, uh, Paul says in Romans that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so this is God's gift of salvation to us, rejoicing always. Not only this, but we are also called to do good. Again, there are many examples we could look to in the New Testament, but notice Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, the verses right before Ephesians 2.10 are Ephesians 2.8.9, which most of us are very familiar with, right? It talks about our salvation. That's a gift by faith, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, thus no one should boast. Notice the words there, faith, gift, grace of God. These are the things Solomon's talking about here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, right? But this salvation that's freely given to us by grace through faith, what's the result of it? Well, we become his workmanship, created to do good works. And so I think Solomon has a great summary of it here. There's nothing better than to be joyful and do good. Isn't that a great life? <laughs> I mean, that's what we want, right? And so, you know, it's interesting when you read different commentaries and so forth, there are some commentators that that really get bent out of shape about some of these verses, especially chapter 11. And a couple of commentators I read called God a divine trickster and that he's trying to sabotage us. And they, they get upset about this idea that God's put eternity in our heart, yet so that we cannot see what he's doing from beginning to the end. They say, why would God put that in our heart and then trick us or sabotage us so that we can't understand it? I think this is a twisted view, a twisted way of reading Ecclesiastes. And I think it misses the point that he's making because what kind of world is it if you can't trust God or you think God is trying to trick you or sabotage you? It's certainly a world that you're not going to experience much joy in, right? And so Solomon's trying to say, look, God's not trying to trick us. There's nothing better than to be joyful and do good. Trust him. Trust that he knows what he's doing. I have other friends that I know who... They really struggle with big questions in life. Like, Greg, I need some answers to my questions. And, of course, they're questions that don't have answers, right? But their, their, their perspective or their posture is, I can't trust God until he answers my questions. Again, I think that's, that's unfortunate, right? God's not giving us all the answers that we want. We just have to accept that. And our view of God and our relationship to him will determine our experience of life. Do you trust him? Or are you skeptical of him? Ecclesiastes is inviting us to trust him. 
The second perception, or the, the second insight here is fear God and be reconciled to him in verses 14 and 15. Notice what he says here. I perceived, this is the second thing that he perceived, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Now, we're not going to have time at the end of the message today to talk about goads and nails, so I just want to throw one goad in right here, okay? And, and it comes from these verses, and it's simply this. It's better to admit that you don't understand than to think you know better than God. Solomon's admitting there's a lot of things that he doesn't understand, but right here he's saying, I don't know better than God. You see, he's saying, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away. If I do something that you can't add to and you can't take away for, what is that? That's perfection. That's what Solomon is saying here. God is doing a perfect work. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to take from it. We need to trust him. This is the fear of God, right? It's, 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 it's human pride and arrogance to think that we know better than God or that, that we can just kind of progress, back, uh, progress beyond these ancient ideas about God and belief and religion and so forth. And we need, that, that, that's what's holding us back. We need to forget about that. We need to move on into the future. We need to imagine a better world, right? It's just not the way it is. You know, when I was in high school, I was a wrestler, and uh, I had a coach named Coach Brandt. My dad was the assistant coach. He remembers Coach Brandt. He was a charismatic guy. He's bigger than life, you know. And every year, the first wrestling practice, he would bring all the guys into the, 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 the wrestling room. He'd set us down, and he'd tell us his rules. And every year, he said, it's my way or the highway. You know, he was establishing his authority up front. Now, we all loved him. We all respected him. And, and if you followed Coach Brandt's rules, everything would be fine. And we had a very good experience, uh, you know, if we followed his ways. But there were always a few guys that didn't want to do it his way. And so they hit the highway, you know. They just weren't, they couldn't be on the team. Now, this may not be the best example, but it gives us the idea. I mean, this is God's world. We are God's creatures, do we really think we know better than him? And even if we think we do, it doesn't change anything. Now, there's a very interesting verse here at the end here. It says, God seeks what has been driven away. Another translation says, God seeks what is past. What is that? What is God seeking that is past? You see, we want to forget the past and move into the future, right? But God's saying, no, there's something here in the past that we need to deal with, right? We go back to the very beginning when God said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will surely die. We decided, no, God, thank you very much, but we will go a different way. We will trust a different voice. We want to be like God. We want to know and experience good and evil for ourselves. And God has let us do that. God has let us experience good and evil, right? But there's a problem there. There's a broken relationship there that needs to be fixed. And so what does God do when he sends his son into the world? Does he give us 
visions of a bright future. No, he deals with what happened in the past, right? There's a problem there. And so Jesus goes to the cross and he takes our sins upon them to bring reconciliation to our broken relationship with God. So friend, look, you can despise God. You can be mad at God if you want. You can think you know better than him. But that does not lead you anywhere good in your life. And if you don't repent of those kinds of thoughts about God, you will find yourself in hell. It's better to fear God, be reconciled to him in Jesus Christ. So these are the two insights that Solomon gives us here. And then he goes on to start talking about what he actually does see in the world. And, he, and so he's going to talk about ten vanities and evils that he sees that challenge this faith in God, right? This is what makes us, this is what makes him say, I can't see what God's doing from beginning to end. I believe that he's going to make it beautiful in the end, but I can't see it, right? And this is why. This is what Solomon sees. Now, we're going to look at the first three today, and then in the next two weeks, we're going to look at the next seven. So this is what we see, vanity and evil under the sun. The first thing we see is injustice, wickedness everywhere. Notice what he says in verse 16. Moreover, I saw, okay? He's starting to talk about things that he sees, his experience of life under the sun. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now, these places of justice and righteousness are probably what we would refer to as church and state, right? When you go to the courts, you expect justice. When you go to the church, you expect righteousness. But Solomon is saying it doesn't always work out that way. I see, I see wickedness in places where I'm supposed to find justice. I see wickedness in places where I'm supposed to find righteousness. And then he says this very interesting. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter under work. This is kind of, a lot of commentators call this a hanging argument. He doesn't really tell us why he believes this, except that he says, there is a time for every matter and for every work. I think Solomon is making a logical conclusion here from his faith that God will make everything beautiful in his time, because how can God make beautiful everything in his time if justice is not done and seen to be done, right? And so he's logically saying, I believe at some time God is going to judge the righteous and the wicked. He must do that if he's going to make everything beautiful. But he goes on with the second observation. We just don't see it in this life. He's going to make this clear throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that uh, bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people. We don't see this justice resolved during our lifetime. In fact, what we see is that humans die like animals. That's what he observes here in verses 18 to 22. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them. This word testing can also be exposing. God's exposing something about mankind here. Our weakness, our frailty. They may, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. 
all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows? Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot, who can bring him to see what will be after him. Now, last week we saw in chapter 2 that Kohelet struggled with the reality that the wise died just like the fool, right? That was a big problem that caused him a lot of grief. Here he takes it a little, little even further. He wrestles with the brute facts that from all appearances, we die just like the animals. And it's interesting how he says, who knows? He's not saying that he knows, right? He's saying, I don't know, right? I don't know what happens to the spirit after we die. At the end of the book, he'll actually say that he believes the spirit, when, when man dies, the spirit returns to its maker. But here he's just, I think he's just trying to say, as we look out, as what I see, no one's come back from the dead and told us what happens, right? We have no information about life after death. And so he's just saying, this is what I see. The animals die, they go back to the dust. Humans die, we go back to the dust. We don't know what happens. And at this time in biblical revelation, there was very little information about resurrection. There's one verse in Job, there's one or two verses in Psalms that hint at the possibility of resurrection. But Solomon's just simply saying, we don't have any evidence of a resurrection. Now, this is something that, praise God, we don't have to struggle with like Solomon did, right? We have some evidence now. In fact, there is as much or more historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other historical fact. And because of Jesus' resurrection, we do not have to wonder like Kohelet did what happens to the spirit of man when, when he dies. We will rise again. And that changes everything. The Apostle Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 15. This is a chapter where he talks extensively about resurrection. And he says in 1532, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And he might be referring to Solomon here in Ecclesiastes. He might also be referring to Epicurean uh, philosophers of his day. But nonetheless, he's just saying if, if there's no resurrection... We just have to make the best of the life that we have here and now. But he's saying, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And this becomes our hope of redemption. Jesus also made it clear that when we are raised from the dead, we will face judgment. We will stand before his throne. But this is what Paul says in Romans 8, 23. Also, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so this is our hope of resurrection. And so as we read Ecclesiastes, we don't have to struggle with this like Solomon did because we live on the other side of the cross. We live on the other side of the resurrection. So Jesus has fulfilled this. Uh, this problem in Ecclesiastes. He has overcome the vanity of death and given us knowledge of life after death and of resurrection. And that leads us to the, his third observation and the final one we're going to look at today in, verses, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And this is um, the uh, oppression and evil that he sees in the world. Notice what he says. Again, I saw all the oppressions that had, are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, 
They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is certainly the most depressing and unexplainable evil that Kohelet saw and that we also see. I would say this is probably the most difficult challenge that we face in this life under the sun. Solomon will speak more about this as we go through Ecclesiastes, but here he introduces the painful reality of those with power to oppress. Whether it's massive tyrants like Hitler, Stalin, Mao, or Pol Pot who crushed millions upon millions of people, or the innumerable petty tyrants throughout the world, this is where the sufferings of this present world present the worst possibilities. And we all could probably share stories of sufferings and oppressions that we have heard of that we just can't get our minds around. This is where it is most difficult to understand what is God doing? Why does he allow this? We have a family member a close family member in our family on Lisa's side that is not a believer. And um, we've talked to her about the gospel and about faith and belief and so forth, but uh, at this point in her life, she's not chosen to believe. Um, And I remember one time early when we were first married, and I was a pastor at the time, she she came to, to me and she said, I've got a question for you. And I could tell she, you know, was really, really wanted an answer to this. And she said, Why does God allow innocent children to suffer? We actually think that she may have suffered as a child, uh, though we're we're not sure about that. But why does God allow innocent children to suffer? All my great wisdom, I just said, I don't know. And I don't. I still don't. Like Solomon, I cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We don't have to have an answer for this as Christians. We can acknowledge this evil reality in the world that we live in. But we do have a Savior who has taken this oppression on with us and for us. This is what Isaiah 53 says talks about as it prophesies about Jesus Christ. It says he was oppressed. Philippians 2 talks about Jesus being in the very nature of God. And being such, he did not use his his power, his, his likeness of God for his own advantage, right? When Jesus came, he was God. He said he could have called 10,000 angels, but he didn't, right? He didn't use the power that he had as God for his own advance, for his own advantage, or to exalt himself. What did he do? He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. This was God dealing with that past problem in Christ Jesus. Look, there are many questions we don't have answers for, and God knows that we can't understand the answers because we are trapped in time in our temporary bodies. But this is where I'm putting my hope, in Jesus Christ. This is where I think we're going to find a better world. I don't believe mankind will get there on our own. It seems that all of our best efforts always end in the things that Solomon's talking about here, in injustice and oppression. But I do believe God will make all things beautiful in his time and that he has begun to do it through his son who has entered our world, experienced the vanity and evil, and has overcome it through the cross. And I believe we too will ultimately overcome it through our faith in him. As Christians, we must not ignore or ex explain away the harsh realities of evil in the world. And we serve a Savior who did not ignore them, but confronted them head on in our place for us. And as we follow him, we trust him, and we have hope of a final restoration of all things. And so we are called to live by faith, not by sight. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 the, the, the chapter of faith, right? It's the, it's the, it's the chapter that you, you read all about the heroes of faith throughout human history. And, and, and it begins like this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Look, if we focus too much on what we see around us, we'll lose faith, we'll lose hope. But if we trust in God's promises guaranteed to us in Jesus Christ, we can overcome, and we can be assured of the things that we do not yet see. This is how Paul ends this uh, in Romans 8, 24 to 26, this passage that I hope some of you, some of you have told me you're, you're memorizing this. I think you'll be blessed if you do. It's just Paul's commentary on Ecclesiastes right here. And he ends it by saying, In hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. That's what God has given us now in our experience of life under the sun. He's given us his hope. We don't see it yet, but with perseverance, we are waiting eagerly for it. Join me as we close together in prayer. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Lord, we find great, a great amount of camaraderie with Kohelet. We share his struggles. We, we can relate to his desire to believe and yet struggle with what he sees. Lord, we pray that you will just give us that gift that you, that you describe here, the gift of trust, the gift of faith, so that we can be joyful and do good even in this fallen world of good and evil under the sun. Lord, I pray that you will just do your work in our hearts and lives this morning, challenge us where we need to be challenged, change us where we need to be changed, and Lord, encourage us with the hope that you offer us in Jesus Christ. 
It's his name we pray.